I'm Andrew Faust, here with Permaculture Perspectives, and today, on our episode, you're going to hear me talking with Megan Offner, innovator, entrepreneur, graduate of our Permaculture Design Certification course, and Megan has started a cooperative, woman-owned woodworking company called New York Hardwoods. And here, just kick back, listen, and enjoy as we talk shop about her closed-loop, permaculture-inspired business opportunities. Andrew Faust, Permaculture Perspectives. Check us out at permaculturenewyork.com. And we are also at Permaculture Living in other venues. Enjoy. This is Andrew Faust with Permaculture Perspectives. I'm here with Megan Offner and Rosendale. We're just hanging out, talking about our lives and various explorations of uh, things, you know, both related to what we're doing and permaculture, which is what this uh, this podcast is about. And so, how we met. And how we met. <laughs> and and I'm excited to have. Megan's a graduate of our course from Refresh My Memory. When what was your I was supposed to ask you this before I turned on record, but instead I'm gonna I wanna say two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. So in Manhattan. In Manhattan. At the Sixth Street Community Center. Exactly. Yep. Yep. See now that program to me was a real highlight of our, you know, like 14 year arc I mm. realized that we were doing live classes in New York City. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, the program there at 6th Street was really a highlight of the class because um, it was those were some it was some of the fastest areas of growth for our program that I've ever experienced. Like mm-hmm. I mean, we were having 20 to 30 people in the space and just great folks took the class and who I continue to connect back with mm-hmm. people really who were engaged and excited to have something like permaculture coming into the city and well also and i think a lot of people in the city don't know how permaculture applies to them because they're living in these apartments and it was just eye-opening to learn um you know like how how those systems can apply on on so many levels you don't have to be like have land to plant or to build on to be able to make it relevant to what you're doing yeah yeah. So, maybe for the sake of being a little formal, would you want to give give our listeners a little bit of a background, say, and, and indulge me in some things I also don't necessarily know about your history? Like, what kind of what things would you want to share about that brought you, say, to permaculture? And then, sure. in a sense, as much as you'd like to go into detail or side shoots on then what brought you to our particular program. And, you know, then any amount that you could throw our way as far as, you know, what are the various tidbits that you learn from us that you could throw out there that are relevant to where you are now with your with your very important business that you've brought to sure. the Hudson Valley and here in the Rondout. And so yeah. we'll fast forward. We'll be talking about Megan's business entitled Heartwood. New, yeah, it, um, it's New York Heartwoods. New York Heartwoods. Uh, we're based out of Accord, New York. We're um, an all-woman-owned and operated uh, furniture fabrica- fabrication company. 
Uh, it's actually a three-prong business. Like we do custom fabrication, we have a line of furniture, and then we help people make things from their own trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really started. I mean, it was a, it's a furniture company kind of by mistake. Uh, it began with a desire after having renovated a couple of buildings in New York and felt the physical ramifications of using traditional building materials and um, doing a deep dive into green building and um, other ways of constructing things. I was also doing set design for fashion, advertising, print media, and building things, again, using like a lot of solvents and paints and aerosols and um, just things that were incredibly toxic that I could start, I was really feeling. Um, and uh, so we're at a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're hanging out. That's our wait, folks. Uh, we're good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, where was I? Oh, and then um, and but the part, seeing all the solvents and the, yeah, just the like toxins the, that go into the conventional. Yeah, just yep. and um, and feeling their impacts on my body, and then also building things that would end up in a dumpster after hours you know for these sets and uh, I grew up around a lot of clear cuts in Montana so I have this very visceral sense of where wood comes from or and how it can be produced and the idea that a tree was cut down so I could build this very ephemeral thing that had really no value except to get people to buy more stuff and I was just like this doesn't mirror my values um, or express what I think is important, which is, you know, like I've, I grew up in Missoula, Montana. I've always been, um, you know, a recycler, someone who doesn't buy a lot of new things. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Just very aware of the impact that my decisions and my choices make um, on the world around me. And so I wanted a livelihood that also mirrored those values. and. Uh, I was, you know, just talking to friends and doing research, and I don't know who suggested it, but I, someone told me that they saw a post about your class, and it seemed like the perfect next step. I, like, I did a little research on what permaculture was, and it, um, I got really excited. I was like, about like just learning about a different system um, of design and in living, and um, and that was really the first step on. You know the tra- a three-year trajectory of taking classes because from there um, I did the sustainable building and design certificate at Yestermorrow oh, wow, right. with you uh-huh. you know um, yeah. so did some more permaculture and then home design and uh, community design and then over the course of a couple of years a lot of random um, electives <laughs> mm-hmm. and you know still living in Brooklyn and you know studying how to make root cellars and having no way to apply any of that knowledge um, but and then you came around again and we're teaching a couple of friends of mine uh, permaculture at Ananda Ashram it was like a, a abbreviated course mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. they started going back there to do permaculture projects and uh, there was some like natural building uh, there was some natural building happening there so they invited me to also come and volunteer I met uh, Dave Washburn who had managed the forest there for 40 years and um, he taught us a lot about deciduous forests which I fell in love with yeah and uh, just wanted to be in the woods and he invited a group of us out to Wisconsin to learn how to um, like from a a guy, Jim Berkemeyer, 
who has timber green forestry. Uh, he has a hardwood flooring company and in the like a Native American tradition essentially harvests one tree per acre per year of his dying and diseased trees, like improving the health of the forest. Uh, he uses very low impact techniques to get the logs out, um, mills the wood, dries the wood, does the hardwood flooring. The scraps were made into things. So we're back. <laughs> you were uh, you were sharing about Dave Washburn and. Well, this was at Timber Green. So yeah, yeah Jim Ber Jim Berkmeyer. Jim um, Berkmeyer. Yeah. So. Thank you. Yeah, all the scraps were made into um, smaller pieces that this couple sold on Etsy and whatever was left over was burned in someone's wood stove and it was the first time I saw a model That's of like cool. how you could um, work co-creatively with the natural world and essentially produce zero waste you know there's mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. kind of disposables that go along with that but in the um, like overall it was the greenest model I'd ever experienced and it was this aha moment for me of like this is what I want to do but I'm living in Brooklyn you know and I have no idea how that's gonna happen but Dave Washburn, two weeks later, was introduced to a guy named Jed Bark, who had a fine art framing company, had a sawmill that he wasn't using. Um, he and his wife were also yogis and, and interested in community, and um, they were like later in their careers and like mentoring people and uh, taught us, you know, how to use their mill and let us use their tractor and set up a business on their land and. Nine months mm -hmm. after meeting him, I moved upstate full-time the weekend of Hurricane Irene. So it quickly became about, like, what do we do with this wood that's getting landfilled? Was that mill on the property when we walked some of the... I remember looking yeah. at a mill. Yeah, yeah, it was a wood miser, like an yep. LT40 portable yep. mill. Yeah, um, that's great, because those are a pretty widely used yeah, they're, system, right? So right. that's really a great one to learn the ropes on. Yes, it was. It's hydraulic, so you know somebody who's as scrawny as I am can like, feel like a superhero using it. Um, but yeah, it it was just so fortuitous. We had a truck donated to us, uh, but I, yeah. So I, I, you know, moved up the weekend of Hurricane Irene. We hit the ground running and just started like milling tens of thousands of board feet of wood, and you know. Quick, I had markets from having done design build work down in the city, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. but then we needed to build a kiln, so we um, built, we used a lot of the wood from Hurricane Irene to frame out a, a structure and built ourselves a dehumidification kiln. Uh, and then as soon as we had kiln-dried lumber, people started asking for furniture. Mm -hmm. So that's where it was like the furniture was really by a mistake. Um, and that's what, primarily what we do now, and that's, uh, that's what's taken over. So we stopped milling a few years ago um, to focus on the furniture fabrication. Mm -hmm. And then now I um, work with a network of Sawyers and kiln operators that I've vetted over the last decade uh, that also work you know, primarily with urban and fallen trees. So when we're not milling our clients' own trees, we try to source wood from them as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And how, how did that kiln work, the first one, the one that you built? You said it was called what? It's a, a dehumidification, dehumidification kiln. Dehumidification. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it, it monitors the humidity so that it's drawing out but also conditioning the wood at the same time. Um, it's a slower process. The kilns that we use now are primarily vacuum kilns because most people don't want to wait 
two years for wood to dry. You know, wood dries about a year per inch thickness if you let it air dry and, and you know, like the, you know, if it's stored outdoors, um, you know, it, it takes some time. And we, there's different kiln technologies. Some can turn, you can dry wood right off the saw. Most of them benefit from air drying for at least a couple of months. Mm -hmm. um, and then kiln drying. And then kiln Finish, drying. Yeah. But we're working with more sense. and more projects on these, like with these long-term schedules where the, the trees are being cleared for new construction. Yeah. So we're milling them and letting them air dry for a year, maybe a year and a half. Mm -hmm. So the, the quality of the wood is even better. You know, mm -hmm. it's like when you kiln dry it earlier on, it's kind of like microwaving food. Mm -hmm. Like the, mm -hmm. as a woodworker, it, right. it's just not as nice to work with. Um, so you have some space where you can set up stack and stickered stacks of, is at, that how you're doing the, the stacking and stickering system? Yes. Yeah. But we don't usually do it on site. We have a lim we have mm -hmm. a couple acres around our shop, but mm -hmm. not really land that we can do a lot of air drying on. Right, and just right. because of the handling costs, uh, the, there's a couple of mills that we work with that will store that wood for us. Yeah. Side. Nice. Yeah. So if we can do, there's some that are soup to nuts and do the milling and kiln drying. Mm -hmm. But the, the ones that we choose really depend on the client location, um, you know, the availability. Um, and then the, those kind of details, like, you know, some people can also flatten the slabs once they come out of the kiln. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. if it's, if they're really heavy and cumbersome, it's maybe easier to just like have, like travel a little farther and have it all done in one location. But um, most of them are, of the mills that we work with are in Ulster and Dutchess County. Like we, you know, like our footprint's pretty small at mm -hmm. this point. Mm -hmm. And it's all like a network within Ulster or yeah, Sullivan, Ulster, Duchess. Uh, do you get Ul over into those areas at all? Um, it's basically all in Ulster and Duchess. All in Ulster and Duchess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, when we were originally doing some vacuum kiln drying, there's one particular kind of kiln where we were traveling all the way to Massachusetts and Connecticut. Sure. Because yeah. the um, it's superior at drying wood right off the saw, like according to that you know manufacturer mm -hmm. uh but we it, you know it, we could still go there if somebody has a very short time frame like we could turn around finished furniture from someone's own tree in as little as 16 to 20 weeks um if they have a very short window but we just haven't had that need so we've been right. using kilns that are closer that are a little bit slower yeah yeah that makes sense yeah but it's a it's i mean like i, I could talk about those two kiln systems I mean, it's basically like the um sure yeah, yeah. So iDry is a really popular um, system that more and more it's a, it's more financially accessible. Mm. Maybe it's like fifty to one hundred thousand dollars a kiln versus the um, the uh, PCS back dry, which is the one where you can dry right off the saw. Um, more better, more, yeah, and more effectively. Uh -huh. um, but they they are. Uh, Closer to one hundred and fifty to maybe two hundred thousand dollars, like soup to nuts. Yeah. So, but when you factor in the handling, you know, of like stacking and stickering and then moving it again, you know, there is an economy of scale or like a certain economy to just being able to pay a little bit more for that system. Right. Um. But uh, yeah, we just haven't had the need. So how about, I mean, would you be willing to, to back up for me a little and talk a little more about your, the way in which the permaculture 
is influencing perhaps some of, of where you are today? Where, where do you see the, yeah. the connection there? Yeah, um, I think the in the biggest way it's it, it's an influence is that you know learning in nature that like there is no waste in with natural processes and like how do we work and live in those ways and designing a business that tries to do that as much as possible um, it, you know it became very important to me and um, and like I said like when I experienced that model it, it was like that it also I realized it was feasible I mean it's a it's a natural material so it's 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 easier to not have you know waste that's detrimental and to be able to like do kind of cradle to grave work um, yeah. but yeah. also you know it's like applying that um, to how we design you know we do furniture that tends to be maybe in the mid-century realm um, things that are relatively timeless so that they're not fads that are just passing so that they're pieces of furniture that are made really well so that they'll ideally be passed down you know mm -hmm. for generations because mm -hmm. you know part of not producing waste is creating a product that um, is enduring mm -hmm. you know both um, visually and physically yeah 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 and tell me a little about your shop you you see so it's a worker co-op woman-owned well, it's um, worker co-op, or well, it's, it, uh, yeah, it, tell it's us a, more about that. Yeah, I mean, it's technically you know on paper, still like uh, finance. Yeah, it's an LLC uh -huh. under my name, um, Ashira Israel, um, who came on as a partner. You know, she really she runs the production side of things, mm -hmm. and she owns the building and um, and in Accord, in Accord, gotcha. New York. Yeah. Uh, and then we have a, a colleague who is an incredible furniture maker, and we make a, a lot of collective decisions. I think being a woman-owned business, we're more prone to work collectively than maybe other businesses, mm -hmm. um, and collaboratively. Like today, we were all working together on the website redesign. Um, we do a lot of our design process together because we all bring a set of skills um, from our backgrounds, like mine's very rooted in materials and kind of like construction. Um, is trained as an architect um, and um, has also like GC'd projects, but she's been making furniture for I think 12 years. Uh, Lindsay um, is a trained furniture maker, you know, so she really knows joinery and um, so you know like knowing the material like knowing like how to like knowing the craftsmanship mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um yeah. you know knowing how to install things you know it's like we like as a team um it's it's the best team i've ever had you know yeah. i've worked with and it wasn't intentional to be necessarily woman-owned and operated mm -hmm. um like i've originally worked with mostly men but we've had you know people across the gender spectrum like trans non-binary queer you know and it's like we'd like um to be as inclusive as possible uh, that's always been my my mindset and and to also create a an atmosphere in our in industry like in woodworking it's it's pretty yang <laughs> you know there's a um it's a i don't you know, it's like when you can a male see dominated it's very male-dominated trade. Yes. Yeah, and I, the trades in general, I would posit, really. Yeah, and I think that women see things a little bit differently, mm -hmm. and especially when it's a collective of women. Um, so, 
uh, yeah, there's a lot of care that we put in and intentionality that we put into everything that we do that I think is unique to us. And the way that we, you know, also incorporate just the, like the co-creative aspect of working with the natural world um, is something that I think that also we, that sets us apart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, the trees often, when we're working with clients on trees, or even it's sourcing wood from local mills, like that, that wood influences what the design ends up being, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like you, if you want to highlight. It, the beauty of that material, you know, you make some concessions and it has it has its own say yeah. in the process. What are some of your latest projects that are that are some of your favorites that you could share a little about without, you know, necessarily getting into particulars or yeah. revealing any, you know, of your trade secrets, but just the latest sure. stories that you might want to share about, sure. you know, favorite favorite projects that you that you've been working on. Yeah, uh, I mean, last year we did a big installation for Dia Center of the Arts. I'd say like some of my favorite projects mm. lately have actually been with artists. Mm-hmm. Um, the furniture can be really precious, you know, because we, you know, it's a, wood is a complicated material to work with. It has a life of its own, um, and it can be really unpredictable. Uh, so that was the largest scale project that we've done. It was about seven thousand board feet of custom milled pine from trees that were cleared from the Ashokan, or to extend the Ashokan Rail Trail. And uh, we had that wood milled into, you know, like 16 inch wide planks that were um, gorgeous. gorgeous. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, and uh, did a really beautiful sound installation with a, for a, um, an artist named Camille Normand that just closed in uh, February. Um, I'm working with another artist right now doing some milling for custom sculptures. Uh, James Perkins, he does really beautiful ephemeral art that's also nature based, but um, so it's mirroring some of his canvases that he usually leaves mm-hmm. on the beach. They're like silk stretched canvases that he uh-huh. does natural, does, he, there's, they're dyed naturally and then weather you know, in um, on the beach, so the the tonality is just really incredible, and he's starting to recreate those in wood and in stone. So those like creative collaborations I find really fulfilling. Um, but we just did a really uh, a project for an architect where we worked with a client's own tree and made this beautiful bed like bed with integrated drawers and shelves. That was more of a, mm-hmm. a you know technical challenge mm-hmm. um, and a. Yeah. 70 inch diameter round extending table that was you know an engineering feat i wouldn't say that's my favorite project but it was like, <laughs> but it's one that yeah we're proud of yeah <laughs> oh my god yeah, yeah but we cool. do a lot of beds and tables because it's a you know they're they feature the wood the right. material yeah in the best way yeah yeah um yeah but just yeah i can see that yeah but we have some incredible clients. They're just so appreciative. Like they get really, we invite them to the milling process so that, you know, like they really see, you know, like the wood coming from a tree. Like I think educating people that in that alone, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we've done classes for architects and interior designers and makers so that they're, they're seeing wood move in real time depending on where it's cut out of a log. Mm-hmm. And I think that understanding really helps them be better designers. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, the educational component is getting more integrated into our work. We just did a workshop last week and like wood block carving and just got people working with their hands um, and are putting together, you know, ideas for a larger curriculum at the shop. 
No, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to talk with you about that, see if yeah. there's some, some contributions that I can bring to that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, there's definitely room for that. It's Some, you know, various concepts about, say, looking at sustainable forest management along with, you know, from stump to sticker and mm -hmm. talking about wood logging. I just interviewed Jared Woodcock. Are you familiar with him? No. Jared's done a lot of the plantings for uh, Mark Shepard, who's been brought in to do larger, like, say, 600 acres with, you know, 30,000 or more hazelnuts and chestnuts. Mm -hmm. And Jared does wood logging, and he's mm -hmm. up in Green, um, outside of Syracuse. Oh, cool. And, yeah. I, I think the wood logging thing is a really interesting niche that mm -hmm. needs more practitioners who educate people on how to do it. Yeah. And because it's hands down the most ecological way to harvest lumber. There's just no doubt about it it's more a lack of people who have the skill and understanding right. to do it that way you know, right. with that kind of micro enterprise what would be some pointers that you would give folks about let's say who are who are thinking about starting an enterprise that want to have a, a permaculture minded kind of business what would be some some things you could you could share about and you know like your distillation some you know some synopses for mm -hmm. people of like what do you think if you're trying to create a permaculture minded business what have right. been some things along your journey that you could share well I think just thinking about the things that you love to do or that you're passionate about and that you can that you can understand the full life cycle of that product or process um, and then you know like digging deep into like what would it look like to be able to like stand by it throughout that whole cycle um and finding people i think just taking classes i mean just learning until you find the thing that like like when i took that last class it was very clear in every cell of my body like this is what i'm gonna do and um i think until you like you know but all of the steps along the way were equally important because it's like you just just keep learning i mean it's just i think really important to keep gathering knowledge and then and asking questions and saying yes to things and meeting people and um i think like the you know it's like the interconnectivity that nature has like um we're living in such a digital culture where we're not we're not face to face with people and that's where the magic happens like that's where the synchronicity often happens and mm -hmm. I um, and I think just putting yourself into more situations where that is possible you know will like help steer doors opening mm -hmm. um, but yeah and just yeah but following what you love I think is really important instead of just trying to figure out what will make you money because the money will come if you I think if you put your heart into something and um that's been my experience yeah you know? and um you know and it's it's definitely a hustle because mm -hmm. we're not doing things the easy way <laughs> but um but it's incredibly fulfilling and i wouldn't you know i wouldn't trade it for anything mm -hmm. yeah that's great thank you yeah I, a project I want to share with you that we've started is the Permaculture Living Lands Trust and we recently got 501c3 status for it so we're starting to work more in this what I'd call the public sector and one of the ideas I've been 
excited about is how to kind of incorporate permaculture, forest garden, plant palette with a lot of the reforestation work that already gets done, mm. you know, because the DEC has a program, as an example, called Trees for Tributaries. So in addition, you know, it's like at the, at the back end, you've got the use of wood and how do you close the loop on it, but at the front end, we've got the propagation of forests that are also part of that cycle that we mm -hmm. can be asking that spectrum as a participant in the whole cycle of say the life cycle of a tree mm -hmm. looking at both propagation perpetuation and full cycle uh, highest and best use of our material let's say um, so what permaculture living land stress is looking at is more the way of uh, you know how do we bring trees into the landscape in the permaculture uh, say um, with the focus on nut trees and trees that provide a harvest for some sort of um, food source as well as building materials and stacking those functions right the classic is uh, food fuel fiber shelter medicine right and this polyculture approach of those ambitions is largely idiosyncratic to permaculture we don't come across it in the conservation community you won't come across it at OSI meetings or watershed meetings or any conservation group in the entire Northeast. None of them talk about this idea mm -hmm. that perhaps if you're going to do reforestation, you could think about how it benefits our economy and the ecology, right? It's all eco-function heavy. So part of what permaculture living land stress is focusing on is how do we advocate for and bring about more of a landscape that as we pass on and future generations inherit it, it becomes food providing in a uh, multi-century kind of uh, time frame, mm -hmm. a broader time frame, which is why the focus on the upper canopy, later successional nut tree um, hybrids that have been selected. So like there's these really interesting places we found that have like McAllister hickory to get into the details on this, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a selected variety of hickory that is an awesome, huge nut that's easy to crack, really tasty, and has been developed by people who've been selectively working with, you know, horticulture mm -hmm. activities with the hickory family. But there aren't that many people who know about these genetics or even are doing much to propagate them. Right. So the vision of the land trust and the reason we brought it about is really to help create nurseries that could contribute that plant stock to these plantings that are already happening. Mm -hmm. There's lots of people plant trees that are like state agencies and, mm -hmm. you know, people like Trouts Unlimited in these groups. Right. And it's very important work and necessary work and a great beginning. And so this is really just that concept that I've talked about in my classes for a long time that let's take like what's already working and then let's add to it. Mm -hmm. We don't have to like invent something that's unheard of and try right. to champion it, but like, like let's storing carbon like deep in the ocean. Yeah, or some like bizarre height but what's the low tech low right. hanging fruit. And then you know it's a it there's a lot to it, but it, the fast-forward vision that I'm excited about is this idea of master, shed, master planning for food sheds so that we could start to say, all right, in the Rondout watershed, what does it look like to have a master plan for going 
food independent here. Mm -hmm. What would it look like to do full diet year-round food they production on a watershed scale? Mm -hmm. And it comes back to trees. Trees are part of the uh, part of the pattern that have this long-term. I'm not expecting them to replace annuals or carrots or potatoes or mm -hmm. some good wheat for flour, but rather to be thinking more, where are there opportunities to have these multifunctional right. nut tree plantings, right. forest And how do you think that they'll weather with climate change? Well, that's, they're much more, for, for, great question, they're much more resilient than annuals. That's part of why to start investing in trees now right. that become at least a substantial supplement to our food system right so the mm -hmm. the reliance on annuals makes us more vulnerable in the vicissitudes of climate change than a reliance on say trees and animals and this is part of what permaculture and, and bill mullison the founders of permaculture were already were, been saying for decades is if, if we look at traditional societies we'll see that classically in times of drought times of hardship their fallback is animals and tree crops mm -hmm. and this is part of the logic in permaculture right. saying let's let's fall forward <laughs> right? Right. let's anticipate this and so I, I think permaculture has in a sense been on board with disaster you know preparedness design mm -hmm. since its inception and that's why yeah. it's so relevant to where we are today and, uh, yeah and how do walnut trees fit into that because I mean as a, a oh, valuable sure as a furniture maker, I mean, that's the most requested wood mm. that we work with. So as a, a nut crop yeah. and a, like a beautiful furniture wood, all to say, like, who knows if it'll be a la mode by the time those trees mature, you know, in 20 mm. years or 50 years or, you know, 100 years. Right. Um, you know, taste change. But, um, but it is such a unique wood that I think that anybody would benefit from planting it, both for the nut crop and for the, the value yeah. of that lumber in a longer trajectory. Yeah, and absolutely. There are selected varieties of black walnut that mm -hmm. this old timer we've learned about through the kind of tree... Um, tree nerd network I would call it people, people really nerd out on trees and especially these these um, hybridized selected varieties mm -hmm. uh, have found black walnuts that were selected by John Hershey on the Hershey property in Guthriesville Pennsylvania that are mm -hmm. like the nuts are huge easy to crack wow. good edibility and a black walnut and they're propagating them they are yep they're taking cuttings they're doing bud grafting they're doing you can know. we get some? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. And we can do some plantings because one of the things, we did one little planting that I want to do a lot more of on the Asopus with mm -hmm. City of Kingston and Ulster County um, mm. Soil and Water and DC Trees for Trips. And what we did was we packed the deck with later successional and more edibles, which they weren't inclined to do. If you let Trees for Trips pick the plant palette for your buffer in a bag or whatever they'll call it, they're going to stack it with all these early successional pioneer species that would have shown up anyway in three to five years. If you right. did not, I mean, it's nice. Right. But I've been asking them for a while, like, why don't you guys go with some early successional and a lot of later successional? And they said, all right, well, for you... We will, because we'll I know them, and I've built some rapport with them. Mm -hmm. We've done some maintenance, 
another later stage detailed thing I've learned about a lot of their reforestation projects is they don't have any plan to go in and clean up all the tree tubes. So in effect, you've got state agency funding volunteer tree plantings that sometimes will cover the landscape with hundreds and... Right, and then the trees suffocate because they're just... A lot of the tree tubes aren't advantageous exactly yeah. to kill the trees. But in addition, you've now got a plastic waste stream that's right. un... Um, managed and right. it seemed irresponsible let's just say so yeah. we offered Rondout Creek Watershed Alliance who I've been helping start and found in the area also mm -hmm. as like another project to, to advocate for this mm -hmm. pretty much the same concept which is let's do reforestation in the riparian zone let's mm -hmm. find anybody and everybody who's on board with it so RCWA, we went out and did tree tube collection for three years in a row on the Coxing Kill. And that was what built some alliance, some trust within DEC to be able to say on this project on the Asopus, look, we want you to change your plant list to have a lot more things in it that we'd be excited about, like That's sycamore, great. like beech, like oak. Um, they don't include black walnut. You know, I think a lot of state agency people, first of all, they don't do enough later successional, so the nuts don't get good representation overall. Mm -hmm. But secondarily, I think black walnut is sometimes perceived as a bit of a weed tree by purists. Well, it's messy. Right? Because, but, yeah. <laughs> and the I, way it's allelopathic, allelopathic, so it does that thing with changing soil pH. Well, yeah, well, the juglins also right. like All suppress juglins, growth yep. for a lot of plants around it. Right. So it, I guess it's not advantageous in that regard. But I did notice that like the wine berries and there's a lot of wild berries that do perfectly well underneath. So mm -hmm. it's like as a food forest, it's a perfectly great tree. Beautiful yard tree. And it was a classic mm -hmm. part of the German tradition in Pennsylvania and the Amish still to mm -hmm. plant black walnuts all over as mm -hmm. a future lumber inheritance for their Mm -hmm. you know families and communities so yeah. there, there is a kind of innate logic in allying <laughs> yeah and, and probably gonna, so i don't think it is a fat yeah what you're saying about black walnut yeah. i don't know that that market at least in our lifetimes it's that's a pretty solid one yeah yeah that's true and then and there are unique geologies to where it is desirable like apparently here isn't the best for that really crazy high value of veneer wood where they peel the whole which yeah. wouldn't be what you're talking about anyway well like the appalachian trail when i was in warwick where we started the milling um that's where oh, that's the right. business was like three and a half years yeah um, that soil, like the black dirt, the mm -hmm. walnuts around there, were, it was like the really? wood, the quality of the wood was markedly different than, than around here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that the limestone doesn't impart the best character to the grain of the mm -hmm. black walnut of this geology. Yeah. I've also learned that black walnuts that grow near water, like sometimes you get this watery, reddish, like swirly tonality in the wood mm -hmm. when they're they grow closer to water sources that's really beautiful um so anybody who, who's planting them and just they plant them near water you get some really interesting results which would be another argument another reason to include them in riparian buffer plantings right as part exactly. of that plant palette yeah yeah, yeah. yeah I think there's a lot of opportunity for that to become a real like what I've been calling like food forests to the future mm -hmm. because there are places it's always legal for the public to canoe in a major waterway mm -hmm. so as we reforest them conceivably we're then like canoeing downstream and harvesting like pecans and 
giant selected black walnuts and hickories and they're just falling into our canoe while we're like fishing more brook trout and brown trout because now there's tree canopy cover yeah. over the whole thing you yeah. know <laughs> that's like a key part of the landscape yeah i also there was a i think it was in your class where we learned that was it oxford university that planted an oak that grew they knew that there was a beam that needed to be replaced after 500 years and just that that scale of thinking also was really informative just to like to, to start to design for future de- generations you know like and also and you know, to think about the life cycle of like if, if something needs to be replaced and um you know we plant trees for the you know all the furniture that we make and and just really thinking about the, the cycle of life and yeah. um, making sure that it continues beyond just what we're consuming for what we for what we do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And have has your have you all thought about the and perhaps you have in there somewhat esoteric, but easements, like the status mm-hmm. of the trees. That let's say you are you know at where you're doing reforestation, then a further somewhat technical and legal question that I've learned to ask as an advocate of trees is, are those trees protected? Mm-hmm. Because there's so much deforestation that happens when trees aren't protected, right? Yeah, well, full transparency, like, that? we haven't been, tra- like, planting them ourselves. Like, uh-huh. you know, we, like, we, you know, there's different organizations that we, oh, that like, donate to. Supporting. That, that we've been supporting. Great. That makes a lot of sense. That said, you know, if there was a way that we could start to make that mm-hmm. impact local, mm-hmm. it's just, like, we haven't really tapped into that resource. Great. So that I would love to work with. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That, that'd, that'd we found fun. the overlap. <laughs> That's right. That would be fun. Yeah. Because that's I kind of... I mean, that's what I... I have two other partners on the Permaculture Living Lands Trust. David mm. Harper, who's like a heavyweight when it comes to grant writing, fundraising. He's run land trust for his entire adult life. Now mm. he's a private consultant for legacy planning for various people. Mm-hmm. As well as still working in land trust world. He worked with Agrarian Trust, who were very forward thinking mainly working with the lgbtqia population and bipoc population and helping with land access is what Mm -hmm. agrarian trust does which is they're probably the only land trust that has they started with um severin and greenhorns Mm -hmm. which was a hudson valley group that was around like beginner farmers in the hudson that she started off and then turned it into this land trust and then the third partner on that is Lisa DePiano, who uh, right. came in and was a guest teacher in our programs. And she's at uh, UMass. She's now a professor at University of Massachusetts teaching permaculture design there. Oh, that's great that they have it in the university system. Yeah. Yeah. And we're excited to have this collaborative vehicle for the three of us to work on with mm-hmm. the Permaculture Land Trust. But why I was going into that background for you was to say that we're bringing a lot to the table as far as like the skill power and the the nonprofit status and now what are what are real we're right now only like four months old mm-hmm. that we've gotten our federal status we've had a fiscal sponsor for more than a year and a half we've mm-hmm. been finding seed donors and people to help us like really cook up the idea and Mm -hmm. start to find all these sites that have all these interesting vestigial genetics on them. Mm -hmm. And one of the near-term things we're looking at is protecting those sites, preserving those sites, collecting genetics from those sites, propagating it, right? Because you start to realize like, wow, there's actually these vestigial 
plantings of like pecan trees that mm -hmm. have been crossed with hickory that'll grow in northern climates mm -hmm. and various you know things like that that we're working on that then the next step is to find properties where we can really plant out working demo models of what these could look like hmm. and so it'd be great to partner with you on things like let's say we find a site where we can now do what we're you know the the dry word that the bureaucrats like is productive buffers fairly unexciting <laughs> productive buffers it turns out is potentially a very exciting thing when it really like rolls out into right. a pattern that happens that repeats throughout the landscape and that isopus planting that i was describing to you is basically in a in a nutshell that's that's what we'd like to do more plantings of and then add that other layer of having them be protected under easements mm -hmm. the planting on the asopus what was golden about that one was that it it's a park it's harry thayer park it's owned by city of kingston and so mm -hmm. that to me is a, a good first example of a legacy planting where we can collaborate on tree forest plantings that both have sustainable forest use coppicing use and nuts that they provide so what does it and cost to plant it. a tree in one of those projects well that's what's fun about those projects is right now it's very easy to have 80 percent of the cost covered through state funds that are right. free right and then we could i could put more of an accurate price point on that 20 yeah. percent that 20 percent would be the ones that we get from the nurseries that are selected ones that we fence and right. for the maintenance right right so the things so tree tubes do get removed right. so i would want to fold that into it and I, I think that realistically with that much potential um state funding and other um support we could do a really robust job at the at the part of it that is the more valuable plant species that mm -hmm. we need to protect right so yeah. we can we can plant out these combinations of pushing acceleration getting more of the genetics in there that we know as woodworkers as builders we'd like inclusion like in this conversation of say black walnut mm -hmm. i would want to see things like you know black locust oh absolutely which would not be considered also a typical one right but will they even let you plant black locusts fortunately in the state of new york it's not in exotic in massachusetts it is right i don't know that they'd be excited about it <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah that's that's always been my goal is like to buy land and plant a black locust forest yeah yeah we actually planted a hundred of them 10 years ago that are now finally getting to where i can harvest them for for posts. Not the lumber, yeah, yeah, for posts. Yeah. yeah, for whole rounds. Yeah. They'll be viable. Right. That's How exciting. About, I want to ask you, I know where, I, I don't want to keep you too long here, um, but I wanted to ask you about building projects. Do you do you find a reason to, to collaborate with natural builders or construction or beyond, or is, it, or is your focus right now with the business? It sounds a lot of um, furniture and interior yeah. design examples that you shared with us but just curious about I would actually, the construction end of it. Yeah, I would um my goal is to continue to expand the consulting side of what we do, mm -hmm. you know, cuz you know, I'm not going to be able to move wood around as well as I have been for the last, you know, 12 years and just to have um but just to, and also just to have more impact and to work in different ways. 
So if yeah. there were yeah. there were sites where you know we had a client that like for example we're actually working with a client who is interested in having some of the trees that are being cleared for a house used for a timber frame structure mm -hmm. and to mm -hmm. um, to collaborate in that capacity just to you know because that's not something that's in our wheelhouse but yeah. you know people do come to us because they want to us to maximize the value of these trees that they have to remove you right. know like and store carbon you know like the carbon sequestration conversation is becoming more common which I really appreciate yeah um, or I think it's interesting and uh, I would like to to work more with timber framers and the, you know and, and also just like the kiln dried elements that are necessary for like trimming out a house or like I feel like yeah. there's um, you know like the, the beams that are necessary for the construction but then there's the cutoffs that can be like used for a lot of other finished details and you know like maybe that's something where we can dovetail with the furniture or built-ins and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah well yeah on that note I mean I would love to introduce you to the Rondout Natural Builders and that Great. crew of guys they are definitely doing some really sweet work it's jeff gagnon seth oh, elmer and claudio i already know them yeah well those guys <laughs> yeah they're great they're yeah. great they yeah, just jeff finished the first uh foundation to fin you know to finish hempcrete house yep. in the hudson yeah Valley. we went to visit that a few yeah. months ago awesome yeah well think remember those guys when you're thinking about that kind of thing mm -hmm. sick they're so talented i mean they jeff's are. a graduate of the program yeah the first three houses they built i found and the so, clients walk the sites, pick the building right. envelope, and then a lot of the materials are on site. All the upright posts, they, you know, Claudio has his own mill, mm -hmm. so even like the rafters and other materials are mm -hmm. using a lot of on site materials. Yeah. First, first straw bale house we built in Kashect, and every stick of wood in the entire house came from on site. That's great. And it was like taken across the Delaware. A mill that doesn't exist anymore that burned down that had its own kiln dryer. Mm -hmm. So all the trees were cut down, taken over, kiln dried, bought back, built the whole house out of it. Wow, yeah. that's great. Solar thermal hot water into the foundation. Yeah. But I would, it would be really, that's another way that I would enjoy collaborating with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Bigger projects and like that yeah. where we can, let's all, yeah. have, let's all have a great time working I on something where you we can bring. have to make bring, it fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's got to be the right context right it just you know let's keep it in our mind's eye that's fine mm -hmm. uh, and i met jeff through you exciting. but i met seth actually through ananda ashram through dave like oh, yes. he was part of that original crew down there when we were doing the permaculture project so it, it kind of ties yeah. it all together too yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 those guys are looking forward to a little break after finishing that house i bet yeah yeah they put a lot into it yeah, yeah. so cool yeah, well, um, cool. definitely. We'll keep this going. Definitely. Keep mm -hmm. rocking, Megan. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, great Good to hang to out you. with you. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I'll be putting in the liner notes of this podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud at Permaculture Perspectives, and I'll include live links to all references that Megan and I make in our conversation here. Really appreciate you joining us, and stay in touch. Subscribe to our newsletter at permaculturenewyork.com and look for our ongoing permaculture classes and program offerings and consultations there as well. Take care and enjoy your time on this earth. <laughs>